Good afternoon and welcome to the City View podcast. I'm Andy Sylvester, the editor here at City AM. In a few minutes, I'll be joined by Deirdre Michi, the boss of Offshore Energies UK, who will talk to us about the possibility of a windfall tax and more. First, though, some of the corporate headlines. And Marks & Spencer said it is leaving its Russian franchise business, as it also warned that its sales growth will slow due to the cost of living crisis. The retail giant's Russian Arm, which is run in turn by a Turkish franchisee, operates about 48 shops and 1,200 employees in the country. In March, the company stopped shipments to the stores, but is now said it will fully exit the franchise, uh, taking a £31 million cost hit as a result. Uh, it said profits for the new financial year will start at a lower level due to the impact of that withdrawal, but also the end of the business rates holiday. And it added that it expects this will stay lower throughout the year, given the increasing cost pressures and consumer uncertainty that is out and about in the world. M&S highlighted that the uh, increase in costs is weighing on consumers' ability to spend, and it expects this pressure to increase further in the year. Trading over the past six weeks has been slightly ahead of levels from last year, don't forget when we were still just about in uh, pandemic restrictions, and that's been driven by strong sales in its clothing and home operation. Elsewhere, average petrol prices have now exceeded £1.70 per litre for the first time. New figures show the average price of a litre of petrol at UK forecourts on Tuesday was 170.4. P, according to the data firm Experian Catalyst. Diesel also reached a record high of 181.4p per litre. Petrol has become around 41p per litre, more expensive over the past year, adding around £23 to the cost of filling your typical family car. RAC called it an unfortunate landmark. And of course, with our new online shopping penchant, that cost of petrol, cost of diesel going up will, of course, hit all of our purchases that require vans to drop them off at the front door. Meanwhile, insurance giant Prudential has poached its new boss from Canadian rival, it announced on Wednesday. Uh, the business said that former Citibank uh, Anil Wadani would pick up the reins in February next year. Prudential expected to tap him for his experience of Asian markets where the Mumbai educated Wadani has spent most of his career. The insurer, of course, is listed and has headquarters in both Hong Kong and London, but there have been concerns in recent years that it might walk away from its London base after a pivot to Asia and Africa. And commuters will need to brace themselves, I'm sorry, for a new wave of strikes after members of the RMT Union working in the railway industry decided in favour of nationwide industrial action. RMT announced the ballot results last night uh, with a majority voting in favour of walking out over pay and conditions. RMT General Sec Mick Lynch called it an overwhelming endorsement. Government and also railway operators all absolutely livid. And I have to say, I'm minded towards the latter rather than the former. But enough of that. Um, I'm now joined uh, amid talk of a windfall tax and much discussion of the role of the offshore energy industry in the UK by Deirdre Michi, who is the boss of Offshore Energies UK, representing the UK's offshore energy providers and extractors and all sorts. Deidre, thanks for um, taking time out of what I imagine is a pretty busy schedule at the moment. No, thank you for asking me. A pleasure to be here. Um, Many of your members are used to navigating storms uh, in the North Sea in particular, but it's a political maelstrom in Westminster that's dominating many of the headlines at the moment and no doubt an awful lot of your work. Much chatter of a windfall tax amid rising energy prices. Um, fair to say that there are some trade associations which shy away from from getting too involved uh, in, in public political battles, but I think it's fair to say a letter you sent earlier this week um, laid out where the industry is and why a windfall tax or one-off levy on, on energy companies uh, would be a bad idea. Why don't you just talk us through the logic behind that? Yeah, sure. No, thank you. Um, yeah, so I think 
you know, we, we absolutely as the sector recognise there is a consumer crisis going on. I mean, that is obviously patently there and it's unprecedented and people are really struggling. Recognise all that. But I think, you know, from our perspective, we do continue to push for uh, fiscal predictability and stability. And for a number of reasons. One, we think it's working in terms of mm. the fiscal ratio that we have at the moment. You know, we, we've said that, you know, we'll be paying another £7.8 billion pounds to, to Treasury this year, which could be used to alleviate the, the consumer crisis. We're also then predicted to, um, and that's a conservative prediction in mm. terms of another £23 billion, uh, over the coming five years. So the, the, the tax regime is working. And of course, we're already, our tax regime, you know, is twice what other sectors pay. So the, the point, though, is, we don't like, as other businesses don't like, we don't like unpredictability. We, we ask for stability because we think it works. And our concern is that if there is a windfall tax, it will undermine the investment that we know is mm. critical to security of energy supply. So in the oil and gas, but also crucially is to the energy transition. So yep. we have identified up to 250 billion pounds worth of potential spend and investment by the sector across all the energies between now and 2030. We think that's a, that's at risk if there is a windfall tax that seeks to undermine that stability and that predictability. So the, the letter that you, you reference is um, one from our supply chain members, because of course you know bashing the oil and gas operators that's just you know that's a bit of a sport really. But actually, the supply chain have come in behind to say, this is not just about the oil and gas operators, folks. This is about our business, our activity, and what hurts them will absolutely undermine our business. Mm. Um, and that's where the jobs will go. Um, and that, and they're the people, again, that we need to um, support the energy transition. So that's kind of why we're saying what we're saying. That makes perfect sense. I think the one thing that people push back about um, is around the investment piece because, of course, BP boss Bernard Looney a few weeks back saying that if a windfall tax turned up, it wouldn't stop BP in particular doing the investments that they had already got planned in. Um, My instinct is that that is a slightly different story for firms that are smaller because everybody thinks of this energy tax, the one-off levy, whatever you want to call it, as basically being around BP and Shell. We're as guilty of that as anybody else. But talk to us about the wider sort of North Sea energy environment, I guess, because there are more than two players, famously. Yes. No, thanks for that. There absolutely are. And I think I think when Bernard Linney said what he said, um, uh, he did then you know, come back later at the AGM to reinforce that actually they do need you know, fiscal predictability and stability in investment is key. Um, but as you say, our basin is made up of quite a diverse portfolio of different um, operators. You know, some are your big shells, your big, P- your big PPs, but others are uh, smaller, they're niche players, and they are really worried about a windfall tax because of the way they, you know, their, their investment uh, is profiling. There's a lot of concern about the fact that, you know, we are coming in, we are in this perfect storm of inflation, very, very high, skills being challenged, and to have the fiscal stability uh, undermined as another uh, part of what is becoming a very complex, challenging economic situation mm. is really uh, worrying other members. And talk to me about the state of the industry uh, when it comes to offshore energy in the UK, because 
At the moment, when you look at energy prices and you hear the narrative in the in discussion, it sounds like things are going pretty well. But the, it, it give us a sense of the last sort of few years, because it isn't that long, of course, since global demand for oil in particular just fell off a cliff. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so yes, so we're now in a in a situation where yes, we're seeing uh, the returns, but as you say, this is on the back of a downturn that everybody went through, where we saw firms with eye watering losses, um, and also our supply chain. So we actually, you know, started. I remember starting at the beginning of twenty twenty, thinking actually things were looking were starting to pick up because we were starting to recover from the previous downturn. Basically, the sector has seen two downturns, one after the other, which does make us slightly different. So, of course, then COVID hits. We then see companies absolutely pulling back uh, and that absolutely hitting the supply chain. And we estimated at the time that about 30,000 jobs were lost from the sector. Mm -hmm. So you start to see a gradual pullback as we come through COVID, people starting to, to build back, but still, you know, CapEx levels dropped by uh, 30% during that time. OPEX was sustained, operation, operating expenditure was sustained because we kept producing, um, but all, you know, albeit with um, restricted uh, manpower. And so the whole thing has been about, right, we need to bring that investment back. And that investment stopped for a number of reasons. Obviously, it stopped for the economic situation that we were all in but it also pulled back because of the investor sentiment that the sector was facing particularly in the uk with cop 26 and the real pushback around people saying actually we don't want oil and gas um and so that did you did find people hesitating to make financial investment decisions and there was actually only one or two that went ahead last year so that you know we're seeing a real gap in capex commitments um, that have been sanctioned uh, uh, last year and moving into this year. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think I think people do forget, um, sort of stepping away from journalists towards commentator, but people do forget quite how tough it was there in 2020. And of course, back to 2014, the last oil crash. So it's not exactly been a bed of roses. And now for government to then turn up when things are starting to look better. Um, and I think most people in the world do agree this is probably a temporary spike um, in energy prices, at least temporary in the in the grander historical scheme, talking year two years, um, it does seem odd that they then come back at the, at the other end potentially. Um, mm -hmm. With with that demand for for more cash for an industry which, as you say, is already overtaxed. Talk to us just about criticism that comes from another area, not just the criticism that you're making money, but the criticism that you're not moving fast enough in the transition. That North Sea oil and gas is. Is, a, is an industry that the UK might be better off without for the sake of its climate targets. And um, there will be people that say, you know, blimey, windfall tax on these companies and moving beyond that, time to stop taking, you know, natural resources out the North Sea or wherever it might be. How do you, as a, you know, in your role, how do you push back at that? What's the argument back to those people who have very strongly held views? Yeah. So I think, I think it's then let's look at the data. So, you know, we look at the Committee on Climate Change data, which points to the fact that the UK will continue to use oil and gas as we go through this transition. And our argument is that for as long as you as the UK uses oil and gas, we should be using what we produce mm. um, on a homegrown basis. So optimising the jobs, um, using the companies that we have, and then not importing even more than we have to at the moment. We are a net importer because that does come with a bigger emissions footprint than if we produce it locally. That's the irony of some of you know, our detractors who say, well, we shouldn't be producing it, but we're saying that we're still going to be using it. 
well, you could just import it. Yes, but then you don't have the jobs, you don't have the revenue. And like I said, ironically, you're actually adding to the emissions uh, footprint. So in terms of us going fast enough, um, we were one of the first sectors to come out in support of the UK government's 2050 net zero target. And then we signed the North Sea transition deal with the UK government last year, which is all about how does a oil and gas sector, you know, decarbonize its activities, produce cleaner oil and gas while helping to unlock the new energies like hydrogen, carbon mm. capture and storage and offshore wind. And so, you know, that is our role. And as part of that, we committed to um, reducing our emissions 50% by 2030, 90% by 2040, net zero by 2050. Um, our, and and so, so we are committed to getting to that point. And we've set interim targets on our emissions, which we are on track to deliver, which I'm very pleased about. But it's difficult. This stuff is difficult. Mm. Um, and it doesn't happen overnight. And I think part of the challenge we have is that people say, well, yeah, you're not moving fast enough. But there is a practical challenge. There's a, a technological challenge. There's a financial challenge of you know, putting all those things together. And there is also you know, practical things about one of the ways we'll deliver on our emissions reductions is if we can electrify our offshore assets. To do that, we need to have access to the grid. To get access to the grid, there are a number of um, regulatory barriers that need to be um, uh, dealt with. Mm. So it's a complex picture that that means that this does take time. And then also when you think about the infrastructure that we have as a country, you know, we've got 32 million uh, petrol and diesel cars. We've got you know, 85% of our homes are uh, heated by gas boilers. This stuff does take time, whether people like it or not. And we have to do it in a way that recognizes that. But I think the fact that we're all committed to the end, you know, getting there um, as quickly as we can. And I hope that some of our detractors, once we're able to demonstrate, you know, the actions that we're taking, they will start to see, okay, these people are for real. They are really trying to drive this agenda forward. But a lot of the stuff we're doing is planning mm. and getting, you know, getting, getting our ducks in a row. But you've got, you've got five um, carbon capture and cluster uh, uh, projects across the UK. You've got people, uh, um, companies committing to the Scotland project, which is a massive opportunity for offshore wind. Um, but, you know, where we are today to where we need to get to, there are some big challenges that we all have to work to kind of unlock. Yeah, still a journey for sure. Deirdre, I have a feeling we'll be talking to you again, uh, either on this podcast or through City AM at least, um, as the news agenda shifts. Uh, but thanks for joining us today. No, thank you very much for asking me. Thanks very much. That was Deirdre Michi, the boss of Offshore Energies UK. I dare say we'll be discussing the windfall tax for some time. Rumours flying about in Westminster this evening that we may even hear something on that tomorrow from the Chancellor in the Commons. We shall wait and see. For today, that's all from us at City AM.